Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Lee Child and Andrew Child, interviewed by broadcaster Steph McGovern, live at the 2023 Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with the creators old and new of the iconic Jack Reacher. Thank you. Oh, it's lovely to see you all here. Thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. What an honour and a treat it is uh, to be on stage with these two legends. As Vaz said, uh, Jack Reacher is a global phenomenon, and he mentioned there about a book being sold every nine seconds somewhere in the world. There's something like over 100 million books which have now been sold, and of course... There's uh, the whole franchise operation off the back of it. The films starring Tom Cruise, of course, and the Amazon TV series as well. Created, of course, by Lee Child, and now enjoying a second phase of life uh, in collaboration with Lee's brother, Andrew. And Andrew himself, before this, had written nine thrillers under uh, his given name, Andrew Grant. No Plan B is their third Reacher collaboration together, and it's as gripping as ever. So this is a real treat, this. Now, before we get into the books, can I ask you a bit about your childhood? So you, there's 14 years difference, isn't there, between you. You grew up in Birmingham, Lee. Tell us a bit about what it was like. Uh, it was a mixed bag, you know. For I was born in 1954, and my first reliable memories are about 1957. And then Andrew was born 11 years after that, during which a lot changed, and it was a... You know, to be honest, for me, it was a miserable childhood. It was that post-war austerity, which was not really a big deal, because if you hadn't ever had something, you didn't know you were missing it. Uh, and we were not poor, not, you know, not in the sense of starving. We always had three meals a day, and we always had leather shoes. But apart from that, we had nothing. And uh, I felt like a fish out of water to the point... Because I had two other brothers. I'm the second of a batch of three. And number one and number three were very, very similar, very, very boring, and uh, <laughs> not at all like me. And I, I, I literally felt that I was a changeling. Uh, I'd been mixed up at the hospital. I did not belong there. Really? Uh, yeah, I hated it. Absol- I remember being eight years old. In, uh, it was the summer of uh, 1963. I was eight, I was about to turn nine. And uh, I just thought, uh, this is horrible. And I thought, I've got eight years. I've got to survive another 10 before I can get out of here. But then my life changed really happily. We were on some dreadful, dreadful uh, summer vacation in Wales in a caravan with the rain lashing down and this boring, repressed family all around me. I was utterly, utterly depressed. You know, I just had enough. And I, I got out of the caravan and, and scurried through the rain and sat in our car just to be on my own. And I turned on the radio and it crackled to life because it was an old tube radio in, the, in this old rover that we had. And so I turned it on and the first thing I heard was Brian Matthews on the Saturday Club saying, and here it is, the new one from the Beatles. 
and it was She Loves You, 23rd of August, 1963. Oh, wow. 12 years to the day before I got married, as a matter of fact. But it was, um, and I heard She Loves You, and I hadn't really been aware of the Beatles before that. Uh, and it just totally changed my life. I thought, yes, this is fun, this is good, this is exciting, it's full of joy and energy. There is something for me. And that completely changed my life. And I, from that point on, I had a pretty good time because I just ignored everything at home yeah. and enjoyed the 60s. And then five years later, uh, Andrew came along. Of course, he was just a newborn baby at that point. And I was quite fascinated with that, actually. We, I mean, it was my mother occasionally trusted me to babysit. And, you know, it was a terrible mistake because... Um, by the time he was a year old, I was a, a huge pothead. I was, you know, <laughs> I was 14 and a half, a April 1969. Just, there was one weekend, just the greatest weekend of my life. Uh, I smoked my first joint. I had sex for the first time. And then for the second time. <laughs> with two sisters. <laughs> and then... It was a party on a Friday night, and I came home on the Monday morning. And, you know, then she, my mother would have to go out somewhere, and I'd be left to babysit. And it was hilarious. And then as yeah. Andrew grew into a person, I could tell, actually, yeah, there's something to do. Genetics is right. You know, yeah. we are related. And it was, a, it was a revelation to me. And it was really strange that I was a you know, middle teenager by this point. He was a tiny toddler, but I felt intensely connected. Uh, and I, you know, the family then started to have some value for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed you're alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, and was it, what was it like for you then, the other side of this? Yeah, I mean, obviously I didn't know a lot of this until I was much older, but, you know, as a little kid myself, certain things had changed, you know, we're, we're in, well, I guess we're still living in the same place, but, you know, years had passed. Yeah. The, you know, the eldest brother had left home, you know. But really, the experience was exactly the same. It was this whole experience of feeling different. And um, I think as I got older, I really loved reading spy fiction. And I think it was because if you read a spy book, you know, that spy is pretending to be someone yeah. else in order to fit into this environment that he shouldn't really be in. And I think that's how I felt all my, you know, all my childhood. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing that was different from me, um, it wasn't listening to the Beatles in the car. It was the fact that, you know, he had escaped, you know, and so it Maybe, maybe it was this little sort of chink of, of, of light on the horizon that made me think, yeah, he got out so I can get out. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And, and, and I want to come to that escape, but can I just check something? The, the, something that I read about you, Lee, was that in this you talk about, you know, you were saying you weren't poor, but you, it was a pretty tough environment you grew up in. And am I right in thinking, in your school uniform, you had razor blades in the lapels of your blazer? I did, yeah. It was a thing that... Uh, you know, it, it was a long time ago, and it, it was Birmingham, and it was a sort of emotionally inarticulate culture, yeah. and um, nothing could ever be talked about, good or bad. No problems could be resolved by conversation. And if you had a problem with another kid or anything like that, it was always violence. And so I would... I mean, I was a smart kid, and I loved to read, and so in one pocket I would have a book, and in the other pocket I would have a knife. And then I... I 
I decided what I, I saw somewhere or read somewhere about a guy who had, you know, those old-fashioned shaped safety razor blades. If you sew them in a line under your lapels, then the next bully that grabs you is in trouble. And that worked like a charm for, for quite a long time. Goodness. And I, but I, you know, I had a knife, but I, never, I didn't really use it. And I, I didn't like knives. And that reflects in Reacher that re yeah. the only thing Reacher really doesn't like is knife fighting. Uh, so I had a rule um, at primary school. If you pulled a knife on me, I would break your arm. And uh, I had to do it twice. And, but then everybody left me alone. Goodness, that's incredible. So let's talk about this escape bank. You worked in telly originally, didn't you? I what, did, yeah. So, and, and, what, and, and how was that for you? Was there inside you, where you, you know, you said you read a lot, were you always thinking, I'd, I'd quite like to write, or...? I, no, I never thought about being a writer. It's the weirdest thing. I, I never, ever thought about being a writer. But what I wanted to be, essentially, was the Beatles. I wanted to be doing something that gave people joy and happiness. And in exchange for that, I would receive love and approval, which I was not getting anywhere else. And so it was an actual transaction. I wanted to make people happy. And the school I went to was a very traditional old primary school that... Absolutely, it was reading, writing, arithmetic. And, um, you know, it was a great school from that point of view. I'm sure people of my age will agree that, uh, you know, in Birmingham, if you were born late in the year, like I, I was, you did everything a year early. So I left primary school when I was 10. Uh, never stayed on for the 11 plus, left at 10. And I figured that I knew enough at 10 to get through the whole rest of my life without learning another thing. I could read, I could write, I could add things up. That's all you really need. Yeah. Um, and so I felt, uh, what do I, you know, this, this idea of entertaining people. I first fell in love with the theater. Uh, that was my thing because the headmistress of this very strict school, very strict disciplinary headmistress who all, all she wanted to do was give people a good practical education. But she was insanely in love with American musical theater. And in fact, her niece, she was called Maisie Lister, and her niece was an actress called Carolyn Lister, who starred in Crossroads. Remember oh, yes. that yeah, yeah. In, in the first many years of Crossroads? So there was showbiz in there somewhere. And twice a year, at Christmas and in the summer, she would put on a big show, which was basically all her favorite musical numbers strung together with a completely meaningless plot. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I saw the first of them as a spectator in the audience, and I just loved it. You know, I loved the whole vibe and the feel, these beaming children it brightly lit on the stage, yeah. and these beaming parents in the audience just loving it. And I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I, the, next, uh, the next show I wanted to be in. And um, it was very, you know, they, it was very embarrassing, actually, because they, it was a musical. And so they gave me this sheet of lyrics and said, sing this song. And you know how it is if you can't do something, but you don't yet know that you can't do it. Mm. I was standing there singing this song, wondering why everybody was going pale. And I just, you know, I have no ability, no musical talent at all. Really no on-stage talent. I was always the third spear carrier from the right, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, so I quickly migrated to, to backstage, and I did mm -hmm. that all the way through um, secondary school. And I had what they would now call interns, intern jobs yeah. at the Birmingham Rep. 
and even the Royal Shakespeare Company, I, I, I would go down. I mean, literally, you just went down there and you knocked on the door and said, is there something I can do? And they would let you do something. I just loved it. I loved the theatre. But the theatre, and I still do, you know, to go to the theatre, absolutely love it. But, you know, it's insecure. Nobody makes any money. It's difficult. Mm. So I thought, um, I'll go. And I was incredibly earnest. You know, there was a, a British theatre director called Peter Brook, who oh, yes. was, you know, very progressive and, and really really the voice of the 60s. You know, we did that Midsummer Night's Dream at yeah. Stratford. It was fabulous. But, and he wrote a book called The Empty Space. And he argued very persuasively that all the theatre needs is some actors, a script, and a space in which to... And I, I, I agreed with him, which meant that backstage people like me were fundamentally unnecessary. And I didn't want to be fundamentally unnecessary, so I thought, well, I'll go to television, where it's all about backstage people. I mean, you're on TV. Nobody would see you apart from all these people like me who yes, are enabling the transmission. Yeah. So it, it's completely germane. So, uh, yeah, I ended up in television and... Um, at Granada in Manchester, when in, uh, you know, back in the glory days. Uh, Granada in particular was uh, terrific. When I got there, they were making Hard Times by Charles Dickens, and they went on to Jewel in the Crown, and Brideshead Revisited, Prime Suspect, Cracker. You know, just one great thing after another. Plus, fabulous documentary line, too. It was a great place. Yeah. Really vibrant, and I loved it. Yeah. And you, Andrew, you, you dabbled a bit in theatre the theater world as well, didn't you? And then you went into the kind of corporate life after that. Yeah. Yeah, with, I mean, it's, it's surprisingly similar, really, listening, but it, we, we got there through different paths, yeah. really, because when I was at, um, at senior school, my favourite thing was English English literature, and really that was down to our teachers. The teachers I had were fantastic. Because, Makes such a difference, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, because they would encourage you to read, they would introduce you to these amazing books, encourage you to read them, and then they would let you talk about them. They would get out of the way and let you talk about them. You could come up with any theory you liked, as long as you could justify it. And that's what I like best, because then it almost became a challenge, you know, to come up with the most bizarre interpretation, and then to be able to back it up sufficiently. Mm. And that meant that I wanted to do English literature at university. And um, all my teachers said, no, Andrew, you know, you're not actually that good at it. What you should really do is economics. And a major problem that I have is that if ever someone tells me I can't do something, mm. I've got to do it twice and show them the photographs. So um, I insisted on doing English literature. And... Um, it was, it was absolutely awful, absolutely awful. I thought it would be like it was at school, only bigger and better. But it wasn't, because instead of teachers who wanted to encourage you, you had these professors who were published. You know, They had their theories that they had built their reputations yeah. on. And if you questioned them, if you said, no, I think it's something different, they took it as that you were being insulting or you were being disrespectful. And to the extent that I was actually thrown out of a, of a class because I didn't agree with the professor. And he, in the end, he got so mad with me. He said, I am the world's leading authority on this subject. I am telling you this is how it is. And unless you apologize, you can get out. So I got out. You didn't uh, apologize, then. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. Um, so um, 
and that was 1986, and I still haven't apologised. But um, yeah, I don't think you need to now, by yeah. the way. But so, <laughs> so you know, I hated it. I hated it, yeah. and I wanted to do something different. Um, but in those days, I think it's better now. But in those days you couldn't really just change course. You had to drop out mm -hmm. and then come back the next year. And in our family, you know, our father in particular was this sort of hard-nosed guy from Belfast and, the, you know, before in World War II. So the idea that you might fail at something or you might give something up, it was just not acceptable. So the closest I could get to changing the course was to switch to doing half English literature and half drama. And that was just unbelievably good fun because mm. all my life I've been obsessed by stories. You know, when people ask if you had always dreamt of being a writer, well, I hadn't. I hadn't really thought about the mechanics of writing a book. I knew there were books, but I never really connected that with somebody sitting down and writing them. I just like telling stories. Yeah. And think about it. You know, the theatre is really the most pure way of telling a story because you've got people standing in front of you acting it out and speaking the lines and so I absolutely loved it but after um, uh, you know uh, when you, you know when you do something for a course for an exam you never really get to explore it all the way do you you know no. you get to you know yeah. you, you, you get the exam passed and then you have to move on so six of us at the end of it thought you know before we get bogged down with mortgages and you know all of that why don't we set up our own company, and then we can explore all of those things that we got a glimpse of, but never were able to take all the way. So we did that, and we ran that for about two years. We thought it would take, we, we, we had a list of everything we wanted to achieve. We thought we could do it in one year, it really took two. Um, and the thing is that what sensible theatre companies do is they alternate a new play with a Shakespeare or something yeah. like that, because that brings in the money. But we didn't do that, we weren't sensible. We only did our own stuff. So we were an unheard-of company performing unheard-of plays by unheard-of people. So end of two years, we were completely broke. And so, um, you know, I needed to get a regular job. So this was before the internet, right? This is when if you wanted to get a job, you had to buy the Sunday Times and look for, yes, the, look the, for the advert. Yeah. So what I did was I was extremely scientific. I lined them up in order of which had the highest starting salary and applied for that. <laughs> and by some miracle, managed to blag my way into this job. But what it did was it was good because it fixed the hole in my bank balance, but it was bad because it trapped me into the corporate world and yeah. it took me another 15 years to get out again. Yeah. So, so then I want come to the writing now then because so so Lee you were working in telly and you then famously got made redundant didn't you and so talk me through then what happened and you know what was going through your mind at that point well there were two strands to that one is that one of the guys I worked with in, in the same job as me we rotated uh, on shift work it was a guy called Stephen Gallagher who um very early, probably about 1983 or something, he quit to become a writer. And he's really good. Uh, check him out, Stephen, it's a PH, Stephen Gallagher. And he wrote novels, he wrote fantasy, science fiction, he wrote uh, radio plays, television plays, he wrote Doctor Who for a while. Uh, I think he wrote Spooks for a while. Uh, oh, he, was, he was all over the place, which is really why you probably haven't heard of him, because he should have focused on something and, and made that his channel. But he, he, he loved it, so he did everything. So that was influence number one. That Actually, yeah, you can get out and you can, um, you know, you can make your living crea creatively on your own. And, and then in about... We did this... Uh, I don't know if you remember the history of ITV, but we started overnight broadcasting in about 1988. 
which was really valueless. I mean, there was nothing, we never did any worthwhile programming overnight, but the whole point of it was mandated by the Thatcher government in order to bust the union, because the union was all about not working overnight, because TV management is so inefficient that you have to guard yourself against excessive demand. Mm. And so you had punitive overtime rates if you ran too long, you, you wouldn't work overnights and so on and so forth. And so they mandated this overnight thing in order to necessitate a whole new agreement between management and unions. And the idea was it would, of course, be an agreement that was very satisfactory to them mm. and not so satisfactory for us. But Granada in particular, they did not, they did not want to hire a separate overnight crew. Uh, you know, that would bring in more employees that had problems of its own. They wanted us to reorganize our shift pattern so that we would do it. And, and I, by this point, was shop steward for ACTT and uh, the Association of Cinema and Television Technicians. And I sensed that it was a no-no to them. They would never hire extra people, which is the same thing as really saying, you can have what you want, because we just kept saying no. Yeah. And I remember the final meeting, it lasted until two in the morning, and at about 1.30 they caved in, uh, doubled our salaries so that we would work overnight. And then they said, you know, okay, we're done. And I said, no, not yet, because, you know, we're going to be asleep all day. So we need answering machines for our phone, and you've got to provide that. And we're going to miss the neighbors at 5 o'clock, so you've got to give us a VCR <laughs> so that we, we don't miss, you know, life. So by 2 o'clock, we had this deal that was, you know, we lived like kings for a couple of years. It was fantastic. Uh, but I knew at that point that they would get revenge. It was only a matter of time. They would run it as, as, as little as they could, and they would get rid of us. Uh, in fact, it took seven years before they figured it out and got rid of us. But I knew it was coming. And by total coincidence, after that, the stress of that big deal, we went on a vacation to Mexico with my parents-in-law. I had a really nice time in Mexico, but flying back, flew back through Miami, and I bought a book in the airport to read on the plane, and it was The Lonely Silver Rain by John D. MacDonald. And I'd not come across him before. I did not know it was, it was in fact the 21st of a 21 book series. I did not know that, I just bought it as a book. And I loved it, and I, I thought it was terrific. So I read all the other 20, and they were great stories. But for me, somehow, at that time, at that place, they were also a blueprint. I could see what he was doing, yeah. and I could see why he was doing it. And for, really, for the very first time ever, I, I understood how to construct a book. You know, it was like a guide, a how-to. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is, this, I could do this. I would, I would enjoy this. I, I definitely had that feeling. But it was an incredibly busy job I had, the day job. There was no chance that I would actually do it at that point, but I filed it away. I said to myself, when this comes to an end, which it will, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. And then seven years later it did, and it was time to put up or shut up. Yeah. So where did Jack Reacher come from then? Well, you know, by that time I'd been in, in entertainment for 20 years, and I'd learned that you cannot over-design a thing. You cannot say, okay, he's got to be this, and he's got to be that, and I want women aged 
you know, 31 to 50 to be into it, but I also want young men aged 19 to 24 to be into it. You can't do that, because as soon as you start thinking like that, then you beat the life out of the thing, and it just becomes a laundry list. It becomes cardboard and useless. So I knew enough to know that I couldn't overthink it. In fact, I couldn't think at all. I just had to do it. So I literally sat down and... Um, and wrote that first book, and um, without any thought at all about satisfying anybody except for myself. Because I thought, that is really the only way you can do it. If yeah. you're 100% happy with it, maybe somebody else will be too. And Andrew, you were one of the first... Were you the actual first person to read it? I think I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah because you know, this was a perilous time. You know, I, I actually, at that point, had a decent job. He was out of work mortgage to pay, family to feed, and so um, I've never been as nervous in my life reading a book as when he said, you know, w would you read this manuscript in written in pencil, you know, on, on paper that he bought at WH Smith's, and I had to read this book, and I had to tell him honestly whether it was any good or not, because, you know, I didn't want him to, you know, embarrass himself if it was terrible. Um, I didn't want him to go down a path where it, it was going to fail and he wasn't going to be able to earn a living. And so I was never as nervous in my life. But one thing I really, really remember about reading that book was, you know, that was obviously Killing Floor, the first in the series. Yeah. And, you know, if, if anyone's read that, you know, it's written in the first person. So it's telling it from Reach's point of view. And the way the story unfolds is it's ages before he has to say, his name. And I remember thinking, I don't know this character's name, but I know this character. Yeah. It just it just resonated instantly and it was it was wonderful because I could call him up and say, you know, you don't have to come and live in my spare bedroom. You know, I don't have to send you <laughs> food parcels. So yeah. yeah. And and even and I love there's so many like wonderful anecdotes to like how even Jack Reacher got the name Reacher. Yeah, and you, and you know, it's significant that I did, it was first person, and, and I was sort of putting off him having to say his name, because I hadn't thought of it yet. Yeah, oh, interesting. And um, <laughs> I'm terrible with character names. It's actually the weakest thing, that, the hardest thing for me. And I was aware of that, and I was thinking, ah, what, you know, what name, what name? But I, I had to get on with it, because I was literally running out of money, you know, week by week. So I, I just was writing it and finding reasons why he didn't have to say his name yet. Uh, was, <laughs> before the detective sat him down and said, right, name? I was trying to put that off. Uh, and I, I, I must say that one of the, the hardest things about being unemployed was you're at home all the time. And um, when you're at home all the time, your partner expects you to be somehow available for doing things. <laughs> and uh, I, two things happened. I mean, one thing happened on a Friday night that proved two things for me. Um, I was, I'd written a scene, uh, or a part of a scene, and I was really, really looking forward to finishing it the next morning. It, with exactly that same kind of um, anticipation that when you're reading a great book, you know, you can't wait to get back to it. I felt exactly like that. But my wife said to me, uh, you gotta go come with me to the supermarket tomorrow because we've got to get a lot of stuff. And she's a tiny woman, my wife can't lift anything up. And so I have to do all the, all the hauling around of stuff. So she, and she said, so you've got to go to the supermarket. And I was like really disappointed because I couldn't write the next scene. And at that moment I knew this was going to work for me because it was exactly like the feeling you get when you, you stop from reading. 
I remember reading a great book one, one year. My daughter was, work, was a cinema manager by this point, and she w was working the daytime on Christmas Day because, you know, New York is very self-consciously multicultural, so this is open on Christmas Day for people that are, are not Christians. And so she was working all day, and she was supposed to come over at about 6 o'clock for Christmas. And I was reading the book, and it was, it was a Val McDermott book, actually. You know, Val is big in this festival, and, and quite rightly, because it had that huge X factor that you just were loving it. And I found myself hoping that my daughter's car would break down <laughs> or there would be a snowstorm so that Christmas could be delayed till I'd finished the book. Uh, you know that feeling, and I was feeling that feeling about writing, so I thought, yeah, this is going to work. But I had to go to the supermarket on a Saturday morning, and every single time I've been in a supermarket, which must now number well into double figures, I walk in, <laughs> and there is always a little old lady who says, oh, you're a nice tall gentleman. Would you reach me that can? And my wife, who was with me, had been, you know, her life was on the line too. Uh, and she was being very brave about it. Because I, I, I was out of work, she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to write a book. You know, how realistic is that mm, plan? Yeah. But she was brave about it. She sort of bit her lip. And I could see her thinking, yeah, all right, we'll give it a year and see if it works. So we were in the supermarket, the old lady says, would you reach me that can? And Jane said to me, you know what, if this writing gig doesn't work out, you could be a reacher in a supermarket. And I thought, wow, that's a good name. So I <laughs> <laughs> carried all this crap home and threw it yeah. in the cupboards and then, what's your name? Reacher. That's, that's how it started. That is such a good story. And, it's, and now, uh, um, we, were, we were talking backstage about the, the, you know, you're going to get a blue plaque somewhere. <laughs> Could it be Asda that you were in? When you yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, Asda in Kendall was going to do that. Yeah. Uh, Jack Reacher <laughs> was invented here. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And what about then the decision to have a pen name? Was that, why did you decide to do that? Well, because uh, I had, you know, I'd worked, uh, worked for Granada, which was a staff position. And, um, you were allegedly, you know, theoretically not allowed to work for anybody else. You were exclusively contracted to uh, to Granada, but they turned a blind eye pretty much. You know, if you wanted to go and do some moonlighting for, and I, I did, I made a movie with Stephen Gallagher that I mentioned before, yeah. and I did lots of other little side jobs that I was interested in, and that was fine as long as you didn't throw it in their face. You used a different name. So by the time I left, I'd used probably six, I think, six separate names. And it just became second nature to me. New, pro new project, new name. And so I, uh, I chose the pen name and thought, and to be absolutely honest about it, and it's a disgraceful thing to admit, I thought, I had heard, I was seriously misinformed about publishing, but I had heard certain things, one of which is that if, you, if your debut novel fails, then you've had it, you're gone. Mm -hmm. So my strategy was to do an infinite series of debut novels under different names <gasps> until, <laughs> until one of them worked. Yeah. And happily the first one did, but you know, I had a big supply of alternative names if necessary. Yeah. So, and also, you know, this was so important. This was life and death. I was, because I'd been shop steward in a very militant fashion in a very awkward period, and I was utterly blacklisted in television. There was nothing else, no other job I could have got. And so it, writing had to work. So I was 
taken it seriously in the commercial sense, because I'd learned a lot about the, how to relate to an audience commercially. Mm. You know, that's what ITV yeah. is. And, um, and one of the things was, even now, but especially back then, it's a total word of mouth business. And if you have a name that is difficult to remember, difficult to say, um, it's a huge disadvantage. Because, you know, let's say I say to you, um, there's this great book by whoever. And if it's a complicated name, you'll forget it. Yeah. And, and you won't go and buy the book tomorrow. If you do remember it, maybe you will. So I thought I'll use Lee Child because um, Child, first of all, it's early in the alphabet. Uh, which is incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, you're in the Christie and Chandler kind of. Yeah, and you know, Michael Connolly, Harlan Coburn, yeah, Robert yeah. Christ, just in, yeah. in Patricia Cornwell at the time, Tom Clancy, yeah. huge number of people. In fact, you know, I did the research, I was taking it seriously. 63% of New York Times bestsellers were written by authors with the initial C. Oh, interesting. Because as, uh, in the West, we browse from left to right. And we get bored very quickly. And A is usually badly shelved. It's sort of knee high at the end of some other section. So you really start with B, C, D. And after that, you get fed up and you walk away. So C was perfect. Yeah. And um, so that's why I did it. Partly habit and partly sheer commercial instinct. Yeah. And it's a name that you've now taken on to be part of the collaboration because you've written as I mentioned right at the beginning you've written thrillers haven't you and you wrote that in your given name and yeah well actually I was going to use a pen name originally because oh, you? you know bizarrely enough given where we've ended up I wanted to make sure at the beginning of my career that I kind of made it on my own I didn't want to be associated with him in any way so um, I had a different agent different publisher and even though he was already one sort of level of separation away from our, our real name, yeah. I wanted to have another level. So I, I, I invented an, a different pen name. But what, and, so, and I had that pen name right up until um, my first book was finished and it was, um, it was under offer from a publisher. I was about to sign the deal. And one piece of advice uh, he gave me was... Um, tell the, the relevant people that it's a pen name early so that, you know, it's not some weird, awkward thing 10 years later when yeah. you say, oh, by the way, I've got a different name, you know? So um, I told my agent and she said, well, what on earth are you doing? The pen name, she said, the pen name I picked was awful and then my real name was more, more marketable. So, um, <laughs> you know, being a complete mercenary, I ditched the pen name and, and, um, yeah. and I felt like it had done its job because, you know, you're reinventing yourself. You know, you've, you've, you've left, you know, I've walked away. Because I wasn't made redundant, I walked away from my day job because this is what I wanted to do. You know, I walked away from the pension and the company car and the private health scheme and all of that. And it felt like a really dangerous, dodgy thing to do. And I needed to sort of summon as much self-confidence as I could. And yeah. I felt like if I kind of was in reinventing myself as this new person, having a new name, helped. Um, but by this point, I'd written the book and somebody wanted to buy it. So I kind of felt, okay, well... Pen name did yeah. its job. Now I can. I got to interject the story there, though, because he was not made redundant, but he tried to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course you did for the money. Yeah. They had a scheme um, at BC where you, you, you could be made redundant, but it was entirely at the discretion of management. So I, I, I laughed about this for weeks on the phone. We would speak to each other week after week. And his strategy was to sit in these meetings and come up with the most ludicrous ideas, you know, just ridiculous ideas, so that they would think, oh, well, this guy's no good, we'll put him on the list. And then he would get money to leave. 
But it, you could have made a movie out of it. He would come up with the most ludicrous idea, <laughs> and the bosses would say, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's absolutely news, true. For, for about the first 12 years, you know, I, I was trying to pay my mortgage. I was trying to do well. Yeah. I was working as hard and as conscientiously as possible, and I got nowhere. It was only when I was trying to make them kick me out that I started doing these things, and they loved it. That's By the time I left, I'm not joking, I had share options. I had, <laughs> yeah, and entirely from being, from yeah. just being as, as, you know, I think, what is the most ridiculous thing you could possibly suggest? And they loved it. Oh, that's so funny. Mm. Right, let's talk about the books then and about you guys working together. So, like, tell, tell me, as I mentioned, No Plan B is the third collaboration together. Why, why collaborate with your brother? And, and Andrew, why did you want to be part of it? Because you even, you know, you, you said yourself there, you wanted to distance yourself from your brother when you were writing, so... Well, you know, it harks back to... You remember when I said I was a very mm. earnest kid... And I, I still am, you know. I sort of set myself ridiculous rules. And one, the, one rule I, I felt, well, it wasn't really a rule. It was a feeling I had as a young person that I was sick and tired of old people sticking around and giving the rest of us no room. I wanted them to get out and, you know, let other people have a chance. So that was feeling number one. And then feeling number two, everything I did as a writer was based on how I felt as a reader. And I felt, you know, series, long-running series, authors that did many, many books, um, there was a fatal flaw in a lot of them. And, and I think readers know this, that, I mean, not so much now, actually. I think people work much better now. But in the past, you would, you would start a series, and the first three or five or six would be fabulous. And you were just loving it. And then you would get the next one, and you sensed that the author was getting lazy, getting uh, running out of gas, you know, getting drunk a lot. Alistair MacLean, for instance, who you look at Alistair MacLean, and the first six or eight are just wonderful. And then he, he goes to Switzerland as a tax exile. He becomes an alcoholic. He's phoning it in. They're just crap. And I felt so betrayed as a reader because you place so much trust yeah. in the anticipation. You know, you can't wait to get this book, and it's rubbish. And I felt... I felt really let down by that. So I made myself a promise, really before I was a writer, in, in the creative world as a whole, I said, I will never phone it in. I will ne if I feel myself running out of gas, I will be do the honest thing and stop, rather than give people a substandard product. And I think I was you know, totally hypervigilant about that, a hair trigger about it. And I was writing the last one I did on my own, Book number 24 was called Blue Moon. And um, two times during that, you know, it took me about, it takes me about 80 or 90 days to write a book. And twice during that, I, I remember thinking, ah, I really don't want to do this. Mm. And I just took that as a sign that it was over, it was done. It, I, I had to live up to that rule that I'd promised myself, I will not give a substandard product. So I thought it's done. Um, but of course, 24 books in, Reacher had become hugely popular in a way that, you know, not just commercially, but emotionally. People loved the guy. Mm. I mean, I've met, I've met children named Reacher because of him. 
it, it happens at book signings, and you, you can see it ahead of time because it's always the man carrying the baby. And they often have the birth certificate to prove it. Oh, wow. The mother is kind of embarrassed behind them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people loved the guy. And uh, I had this thing at, at book events where in the questions, people would say, how many of these are you going to do? And I would say, I'm, I'm going to do 21 because of John D. Yes, MacDonald. Yeah. That's what he did. Uh, and I want to match that, but as a matter of respect, not exceed it. And the last one is uh, going to be difficult to plot because Reach is a very smart guy, but he will be backed into a situation where he either has to give himself up or the person he's protecting. And obviously, Reach will give himself up to save a life. And so the final scene, the book will be called Die Lonely, and the final scene will be he will bleed out on a filthy motel bathroom floor. And I would hear the groan in the audience, uh, you know, a groan of real emotion. And uh, I thought, I can't do this for people. You know, people want this yeah. guy. So I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to carry on past the sell-by date or what? And I, I started fantasizing. If I could, suppose I could take a magic potion and wake up tomorrow, 15 years younger, with all that stamina and energy and all those ideas that I had 15 years yeah. ago. Wouldn't that be great? But of course it was a fantasy. There are no magic potions. But then I thought, wait a minute. You know somebody who, who is you 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> who is already a writer. Yeah. And so I thought, well... You know, maybe I should ask him if he wants to continue it because it was an experiment to me. I, right from the very beginning, I wanted it to be about the character, not about the author. Mm -hmm. And seriously, we thought about persuading the publisher to leave any author name off the book. You know, it's just a Jack Reacher book. Uh, it's about him. And so it was an experiment. How important is the actual author? Uh, is it more about the yeah. character? So I, I developed this plan. I, I was going to ask Andrew to do it. But I was, kind of uh, I was kind of reluctant to because he was writing some really good stuff. He was into a new series uh, called the Janitor series about a military intelligence guy who's working as a janitor in the courtroom. Yeah. And a janitor is completely unseen and unregarded, so he could do all kinds of investigation and surveillance. And I, I, I really loved those books. They were great. And I thought, if I ask him to do Reacher, I won't get any more of those books. So there was that. Plus, Andrew is the most stubborn human being ever, ever to exist. And I knew that, you know, he would rather starve to death doing his own stuff than do my stuff. Mm. So it was very trepidatious. And we were, we'd been, we, we were in Wyoming by this point, and we were driving down to Denver for his book launch, for, for you know, his latest book. Uh, I was going just to be supportive, like he used to come to be supportive to me. I drove down, and the, two and a half hours it is, and then we didn't, and then he was gonna drive back. And as we drove back, this enormous blizzard blew up. Uh, and in Wyoming, you get what you call a ground blizzard, because the, the wind is so strong, it's whipping the snow at 60 miles an hour horizontally in front of you. Goodness. So it's like driving across the ocean. You've got no idea where you are. And you're steering by the GPS screen, essentially. You know, left a bit, right a bit. 
And, I th and Andrew was driving at this point, knuckles white on the steering wheel, trying very hard not to kill both of us. So I thought, this is the time to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> because he won't, you know, he won't react in the moment. He, he's so desperately trying to keep us alive, he'll file it away and answer tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. I said to him, uh, I'm going to retire. Would you like to do, you know, take over? And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, I, yeah. I ex honestly expected him to say no. Yes, and I'm going to open it out to the audience in a sec. So from your perspective, Andrew, I mean, it's such a big thing to take on this yeah. character and what, what was it like well, for you? I, well, you know, looking back, you know, I almost feel a little ashamed, you know, because, you know, I'm driving the car and my brother says that he's thinking of retiring. So if I was a nice brother, I would have said, yes, you absolutely should retire. You've worked so hard for so mm -hmm. long. You've helped so many people in the industry. You've brought so much pleasure to so many readers. You deserve a break. You deserve to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's what a nice person would have done. But instead, given that I was the first person to read a Reacher book, yeah. and I'd look forward to a Reacher book every year for a quarter of a century, um, I just said, well, what do you mean retire? What about Reacher? You know, because I didn't want there to be no more Reacher. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of it came down to what he was saying about the question at the events, because I was at a lot of those events. And I remember it wasn't just the sort of groan or, or, or outpouring of emotion. You could feel the temperature drop in the room. You know, the first time somebody asked was in the third book, you know, because the first one could be a standalone, second one could be a right. fluke. Third one, yeah, pretty much you're on track for a series. And so the first one, you know, he said 21, and you could see people, you know, oh, okay, nothing to worry about just yet. And as each year went by and the same question came up, yeah. you could feel the, the nervousness growing and the temperature dropping further. And I felt the same thing because, you know, I'm the oldest Reacher fan in the world. I didn't want there to be no more Reacher. And I certainly didn't want it to be my fault. Yeah. So then, but then, because you do the majority of the writing now, don't you, with it? And so how does that, how, how does that feel for you? Because, you know, what's your kind of plan for Reacher? And well, you know, it's just been wonderful because we get to do all the fun stuff together. You know, and we used to do this before. You know, we would get together. Reacher, you know, I hope there's no psychiatrists here because <laughs> Reacher was like an invisible extra brother. You know, and we would sit around and we would talk about it and we would mm. say, what would Richard do about this? What would Richard think about that? So we were used to doing this. We used to do it for fun. So now we still do the same thing, only, you know, now I've then got to go and write it down afterwards. Yeah. You know? But it's, it's, it's just, you know, doing something that you love to do and getting to do it with your brother. Yeah. Yeah. Can't, can't get better than that. I've got so much more to ask you, but I know it's really important we get questions from you guys. So um, we'll get the house lights up. And if you've got a question, pop your hand up and we will get a microphone over uh, to you. So, yes, we've got a gentleman over there. Well, thanks. Can I firstly say that I think you two, your voices I could listen to all night. I think they're <laughs> terrific. Um, I might be a little bit contentious here, but... Um, I look at the Reacher films uh, starring Tom Cruise... And for me, Tom Cruise was absolutely the opposite of the Reacher character, but I absolutely loved him in both films. And I've never been able to develop the same love for the Amazon Prime Reacher, and I just wondered, have you any particular thoughts, or, or be honest about who you prefer as playing Reacher? Uh, I mean, first of all, I, you won me five, five bucks there, because I... He said, we're, we're going to do some Q&A. And I said, I bet the first question is about Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely... Uh, 
in, in and of themselves. I think you've got to separate the two movies. There was uh, the one based on One Shot and then the one based on Never Go Back. And I think as a, as a movie, as in, in and of itself, the first movie was excellent. And I thought the second movie was meh, really. The second movie was, was a bit standard. But I loved the first movie. I absolutely loved working with Cruz. He's the nicest man. Nothing that you hear about Tom Cruise is true. He's just a lovely guy, completely natural, unpretentious, and um, a joy to hang around with, fun, fun to do things with, and an excellent, fabulous uh, th theoretician about storytelling uh, with very little ego. Every, at the beginning of every scene, we'd rehash it and, and check it. And he was not thinking, how do I make myself look good here? He was thinking, how do we tell a better story here? And to the point where he often gave away his best lines. He thought, you know what, the, the co-star should have that line or whatever. Yeah, generous. Thing. Yeah, totally yeah. generous. To the point where, especially with the second movie, we had to say, Tom, this is a Tom Cruise movie. Keep some lines. <laughs> uh, but he was just delightful. But... I've got nothing negative to say about Tom Cruise other than he's five foot seven. <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being five foot seven. I mean, I was five foot seven once. <laughs> <laughs> when I was about nine. <laughs> nothing wrong with it. But, yeah. you know, the whole reach of thing. And in that first movie, it, it, it turns on him being big. Uh, you know, there's a line in the first movie, the detective goes to the motel and says, I'm looking for a guy who could kill a man with a single blow. And the clerk says, room seven. And it's Tom Cruise. I mean, really? No. That, that totally doesn't work. Um, so I felt... Uh, and, and by some, some weird ESP miracle, my lawyer had put in a, a clause into the contract saying that after two movies, I had a veto over the, would there be any more. And I thought, by, this, by that time, you see, in 2005, when I did that Tom Cruise deal, streaming television was completely unknown. It hadn't been invented yet. And there is not a novelist alive who would choose a feature film over streaming television if, it, if the choice was available. Streaming mm -hmm. is just wonderful, the, the hours that you've got. Um, so that I said, no, no more movies, because it was, I knew Tom. Tom is purely a cinema actor. He will, he will never act on television. And so I thought that solves that problem and it, it lets us, gives us more running time and it means we can choose an actor and the whole financial structure of streaming is different. The, the actor does not have to bring the money. Feature films are entirely funded based on the appeal of the lead actor. Not true in television. And so it was just freedom in so many ways. And I actually thought Alan Richson for Amazon First of all, looked a lot more like Reacher, and I thought he he did he did an excellent job. I'm very happy with him, and uh, I think the first series, the first season, was great. And um, uh, the second series is in the can. Uh, the third series I can't talk about because as it happens, I'm I'm a member of both the Writers Guild of America and Screen Actors Guild. And we're on strike, yeah. so I'm on strike twice at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the strictures is to say that we can't promote our current projects. So I, I'm not going to say anything about season three, other than it, we did three episodes and now it's paused. 
But season two is ready to go and excellent. So, when, and when's that coming out? Is that December? Yeah, it's dropping in December. What happened with, you know, given my readers, what happened with season one is that everybody signed up for Prime, binged the thing in two nights, and then cancelled Prime. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and Amazon was not delighted with that. So they're, they're doing a different strategy. They're going to drop two episodes, and then the next six are going to be weekly, which takes you outside mm. of the cancellation period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, all these things that keep having yeah. to be thought about. I think there was a question at the front. Should we take that? Thank you. If there's any others, pop your hands up now and we'll get a... Thank you. That was, that was brilliant. Brothers Grimm and Steph. <laughs> Brothers um, Karamazov, we yeah. prefer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was going to ask something about Tom Cruise, but I won't now. Um, five foot seven is fine. I'm five foot, I'm five <laughs> foot seven and it's great. But um, what I'd like to ask is what happens when Andrew becomes the established writer and Lee wants to come back. So what, what you're really asking is if Lee wants to do extra work. <laughs> yeah. Don't really see that happening. I, I, I have brothers and I know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Have, you got, have you got a plan for when you'll just do it on your own, Andrew? Like, is it, have you got in your head Lee, like, a, a number of books or anything? Or is it... Well, you know, I'm done now. We, we, I did 24 and then we did four as a collaboration, yeah. as a transition. Now it's Andrew's thing. But we were just talking today, actually, that what I might do if I get bored, I might secretly write one and, and give it to him and see if anybody, ah. see if anybody reacts see differently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you've got no plan B out now, but then the next one coming out is The Secret, isn't yeah, it? So called, that one's written. It's called The Secret. It comes out in October. Yeah. Pre-orders are encouraged. Yeah, can you give us a flavour of? <laughs> yeah, well, so there? so the secret um, is one of the one of the prequels. So Reacher is back in the army, yeah, and um, he's he's currently in disgrace because he's been demoted from major back down to captain. So you know, if you're in the if you're in the bad books, if there's an unpleasant uh, assignment, you tend it tends to fall on you. And so what happens is some people start getting killed all over the United States in really bizarre ways yeah. that might be suicide or might not. As an example, the opening chapter, somebody falls out of a hospital room window and dies. Mm. And so there's a particular, we don't find out what it is for a while because it's a secret, but um, there's a reason that these people are getting killed, the reason they're being targeted. And the Secretary of Defense in the United States wants a task force set up to try to find out who is doing it so that they can be stopped. Ah. So Reacher is the army representative on this task force. Yeah, oh great. And are you, have you got any, in writing Reacher now, have you got plans to, to slightly change him in any way or, you know, what is there? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, our father was Irish and so he could get away with this. He used to talk about things being the same, only different. Yeah. And so, you know, we want Reacher essentially to stay the same because we love him how he is, mm. you know. One thing that I personally hate is if you really get invested in a series, you fall in love with a character and then another installment comes out and the character is completely different. Yeah. I hate that. So I love to show Reacher in different, different sides of him, different aspects of him, and it's fine for him to learn things, it's time, fine for him to become more cynical as he goes, you know, all of those things are fine, but we don't want to fundamentally change his character. So the plan is to try, keep trying to find new adventures and new scenarios for Reacher, but to keep the same old Reacher that everybody mm. and knows and loves. Have you got them in your head, do you think? Have you kind of... Some of them, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But, you know, one thing I had to adjust to, you know, my, when I was writing on my own, I, I was never a completely, you know, focused outliner. Like, you know, some people write really, really detailed outlines of yeah. the entire book. I never did that. But I did like an idea of, of where I was going and where I was going to end up. And Lee doesn't do that. And I wanted the books, the parts that I've done to sound and feel as close and as similar as possible. So I thought it made sense to write them in the same way. You know, yeah. if you want it to turn out the same, you have to do it the same. So I adapted my method so that I wasn't doing that, you know, looking ahead, planning, you know. It's more that you distribute that planning throughout the book. At the end of every scene, you're saying, okay, what is the next scene going to be? You're not referring to some master plan mm. that says, you know, scene 97 is going gonna, is gonna to happen in this way. So no, I haven't. I've deliberately not tried to set some you know multi-year blueprint that i'm then mm. forced into following yeah um any other questions before i wrap things up yes we'll get one obviously there thank you um a very random question but if you were to be fictionally murdered would you want Richard to solve your case and if not which fictional detective would you mm, like I to like solve that your question. <laughs> brilliant question I think I'd like to be murdered by Reacher. Um, <laughs> that would work for me. And then uh, maybe Harry Bosch could, could figure it out or something like that. Yeah, what about yourself, Andrew? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Bosch is an amazing detective. You know, he has that expression, um, everybody counts or nobody counts. So uh, I, think, I think I would go with Bosch as the investigator. Yeah, brilliant. We'll end on you both dying then. <laughs> this would be a nice place to end this. Um, thank you so much. So fascinating. I mean, I could probably go on for another couple of hours, but I appreciate it's quite late and people want to get home. But uh, please put your hands together for Andrew and Lee Charles. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.